Good morning. Today, to have read Genesis 44 and 45, and with great faith, I trust that to be true. In preparation for next week, I would ask you to read Genesis 46 through verse 28 of chapter 47. Next week, Genesis 46 through Genesis 47 and verse 28. These are long scriptures. I hope always to point out to you verses and thoughts and ideas that help you to better understand the text, but it would be lengthy for me to take the time to read uh, this entire passage. So I hope you've done your homework. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time. Now may, as we open your word, please speak to us, instruct us, lead us into your truth, encourage us and challenge us and build us up in that holy faith once and for all delivered unto the saints. This we pray in the name of Jesus the Christ and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. About 35 years ago, I received a letter from a ruling elder that was filled with criticisms of me as his pastor. What he wrote, his words, they they hurt. They hurt deeply. So with some hesitation, I asked if we couldn't sit down and meet face to face. Well, God graciously reconciled us, and we became friends. We became good friends, close friends. And in fact, when I lacked the funds to continue my doctoral studies, this man who had once been my severest critic, he provided the money I needed to continue with my education. Now, I, I tell you that. Um, I tell you that knowing that it doesn't always work out this way. I understand that. But I, I tell you my story in preparation for us looking at Genesis 44 through 45, where you witness, as I hope you've seen this week in your own preparations, here you witness the Lord graciously reconciling members of a horribly dysfunctional family. A a, a reconciliation that will be of eternal and blessed consequences for you, for me, and for billions of others. I hope to show you why that's true. Now, as we saw last week, Joseph's brothers have come a second time to Egypt to buy grain, this time accompanied by Benjamin, who is now their daddy's pet. And Joseph, as we know, Joseph, he knows who they are, but they don't yet recognize him. And yet as Joseph dreamed some 20 years earlier, 
they bow down before him because after all, he is now the prime minister of Egypt. And Joseph, Joseph serves them a meal. He then seats them at the table according to age. And he gives orders that Benjamin's portion of food be five times greater than his brothers. And now that brings us to Genesis 44 and 45, because as the brothers now prepare to return home once more, Joseph once more orders that their sacks be filled with the grain they've purchased, but that the money with which they purchased the grain not only this time, but also the first time that all of that money be replaced in their sacks and that Joseph's silver cup be placed in Benjamin's sack. So they depart. And very quickly, Joseph sends his steward after them. He tells his steward, that he's to accuse them of repaying evil for good by stealing the prime minister's silver cup, the cup that, of course, the Egyptians thought was used by Joseph to somehow or other magically determine God's will, but of course, he never used it that way. But in verses 8 through 13, as the steward lays on them this accusation. The brothers protest their innocence. Listen, we returned the money. We returned the money we found in our sacks. You know that. We returned that money. Listen, we're innocent. We, we are so confident of the fact that we're innocent that we tell you that in who, whose ever sack Joseph's cup, or I should say, they don't know it's Joseph, in whose ever sack the prime minister's cup is found, he'll die. And the rest of us will return to Egypt and become your slaves. They're pretty confident. They're pretty confident. Of course, the steward ignores their suggestion, and he insists, he tells them, listen, only the brother in whose sack the cup is found will become my slave. The rest of you will be found innocent of all charges and you can return safely home. Well, you know. The cup is in Benjamin's sack. And now, you also know these brothers. Okay, here they are. The cup is in Benjamin. Who's Benjamin? Benjamin is daddy's favorite. Just like Joseph had been daddy's favorite. Now it's Benjamin who's daddy's pet. You know, that's an irritation to these guys. But now, even though they once sold Joseph, who was at that time daddy's favorite, even though they once sold Joseph into slavery, now, what are they going to do? The cup is in Benjamin's sack. 
All they have to do to gain their freedom is to turn their back on Benjamin. How hard then can that be? They once turned their back on Joseph. All they got to do is turn their back on Benjamin. Again, as we talked about last week, Joseph has arranged all of this to test them, and they need to be tested. Joseph doesn't simply need to identify himself to them and have them say, oh, we are so sorry for how we treated you in the past. Words are cheap. Joseph is testing them, testing them to find out the condition of their hearts. Well, when you read this, you ought to be at least somewhat stunned to see that they pass this test with flying colors because the Lord is at work in their hearts. Look at verse 13. Instead of choosing to forsake Benjamin to gain their freedom, they tear their clothes, which was what you did in those days to express your anguish had to be somewhat of a costly way of expressing anguish, but they tore their clothes to express their anguish and they choose, they choose, these brothers choose to return with Benjamin to Egypt. This is a colossal change in who these brothers are. These brothers who once freely turned their back on Joseph now will not turn their backs on Benjamin. So in verses 14 and 17, they stand before the prime minister, before whom again they fall on their faces, and Joseph, unknown to them, Joseph repeats the charges against them. And then in verse 16, Judah, the fourth son of Jacob, Judah begins to plead with the prime minister. He knows he can't prove their innocence. So what is he going to do? Knowing that he cannot prove his innocence, their innocence, this is what he tells the prime minister. We will all become your slaves. It's astounding. These guys? I know these guys. These brothers who once willingly sold Joseph into slavery out of jealousy? Now they will not abandon Benjamin? even though they have every reason to be jealous of him because he's now daddy's favorite. Look at verse 17. Joseph, having listened to Judah's plea, says, Look, only Benjamin, the one in whose sack the cup was found, only Benjamin will become my slave. The rest of you, you're free. You're free to return home. Again, what are they going to do? Abandon Benjamin and gain their freedom? 
I mean, the tension of this moment, it sets the stage. It sets the stage for the longest recorded speech in the entire book of Genesis. Some suggest that verses 18 through 34, Judah's speech, some suggest that it is at this moment that Judah emerges as the hero of this story. Judah speaks respectfully to the prime minister. He reviews their previous conversations. He speaks about their father, their younger brother, and uh, their brother's brother, uh, who Judah assumes to be dead. And Judah reminds the prime minister that, look, you commanded us to bring our younger brother, even though we told you that doing so would kill our father. That, but you commanded us to do that. And then in verses 27 through 29, Judah rehearses what Jacob had done, how his father, as expected, proved unwilling to let Benjamin go with him to Egypt. He tells, Judah tells the prime minister, his father protested that one of his two sons, born to his wife, the only one of these four women that he refers to as his wife, that one of the two sons born to his wife has been torn to pieces. Now, but he's moving in a good direction here. He tells them one of those sons was torn to pieces. Jacob, his father, hasn't seen that son since the day he died. And now if Benjamin, Jacob, our father told us, if Benjamin is taken from me, it's going to send me to Sheol, that is, to the grave. feel the tension in all of this? Judah, I mean, Jacob is, uh, is, Judah's father Jacob is bewailing the loss of one of his two sons and what it will mean to lose the second son born to his beloved wife. Judah rehearses all of that. Judah knows all of that. Judah knows his father's Jacob's response to all of this, so he clearly knows that Jacob loved Joseph and now loves Benjamin far more dearly than he loves the other nine brothers. So remember, as, as we watch what Judah does here, remember that he knows all that. But in verses 30 through 34, Judah, and remember Judah, I'm sorry, just backtrack a moment in your mind. Remember, Judah's the one who instigated Joseph's sale to slave traders. It was his idea. It was Judah who ignored his father's wishes by marrying a Canaanite. It is, it, it's Judah who had an incestuous relationship with his son's wife. And now that same Judah 
that same Judah, he now tenderly focuses, not on himself, but on his father and his half-brother. Judah pleads with the prime minister to understand that his father's life is bound up in Benjamin's life. And if Benjamin doesn't return to him, it's going to kill his father. Now, again, backtracking. You remember, I hope, how Judah promised his father to protect Benjamin. So now Judah, Judah, the slave trader, the incestuous adulterer, Judah begs to be permitted to become Joseph's slave in place of Benjamin. Don't enslave my brother Benjamin. It'll kill my father. Enslave me in his place. Is there a change of heart going on here or what? Who is this man? This is not the Judah that we have known. Something has brought about in him a profound change. And of course we know it's the Lord. It's the Lord. It's the Lord. Now just consider for a moment, just for a moment, consider how the story of Joseph and Judah, just think about this, prefigures Jesus. Just think about it. Who's Joseph? Joseph is his father's favorite son who is sent to seek his brothers but is sold by them into slavery for pieces of silver, and yet he becomes their Lord. Do I have to explain that? Now think about Judah. Judah becomes the first person in Scripture to offer his own life up for another. There are things going on here that anticipate the great story that is yet to come. So now, as Genesis 45 begins, as one commentator suggests, Judah's self-sacrifice is such an irresistible proof of brotherly love that it breaks down Joseph's last defense. For once more, Joseph no longer able to control his emotions. He leaves his brothers to sob so loudly in private that even Pharaoh hears about his wailing. Joseph gets himself back under control. He returns to his brothers. He sends everyone out of the room. And then... Standing before his brothers, this one who they assumed to be dead. He says to them, I am Joseph. 
I didn't put chills. I just put chills up and down my back. I am Joseph. Now, three weeks ago, I attended the 50th anniversary of our graduating class from Covenant College, and I saw many people I hadn't seen in 50 years, and many of them I didn't recognize because they'd gotten so old. <laughs> what stunned me the most was that some claimed they couldn't recognize me. <laughs> and now here are these brothers. They haven't recognized Joseph. But now they find themselves face to face with the one they sold into slavery, the one who they thought by this time slavery, having to work as a slave, would have killed him. The brothers are so, look, the brothers are so speechless and dismayed that when Joseph asks them about his father, they can't answer, they, they can't find words, they can't speak. So Joseph says to them, look, come here. Remember, the Egyptians would have sat separate from these Israelites. Remember that. The Israelites were below, you know, too far down in dignity for the Egyptians to sit with them. So now Joseph, who's probably been sitting apart from them, he calls upon them to come near to him. And he tells them not to be distressed or angry with themselves. He tells them in verse 5, look, I know, yes, you sold me into slavery. But in truth, it was God who sent me before you to preserve life. He further explains this famine of the last two years is going to last five more years. But God sent me to Egypt to preserve for you a remnant on earth so that you will have many survivors. And then again in verse 8. It was not you who sent me here, but God, who has made me like a father to Pharaoh, lord of his house, ruler of Egypt. Now, we don't have recorded any responses on the part of the brothers. They're a little bit silent at this point. So Joseph instructs them, you return home. You tell my father that his long-lost son is, is alive and that his long-lost son is Lord of all Egypt. And you tell him to move his family lock, stock, and barrel to Egypt where I will see that he is given the rich pasture lands of Goshen in which to dwell and I will provide for all that the family needs. <laughs> Look at verse 12. I love the human touches in this story. Look at verse 12. <laughs> Joseph says, now look, you and Benjamin can see it's me. So if daddy doesn't believe you, 
Think about that. Joseph knows that his father Jacob has reason not to always believe what these brothers tell him. So Joseph says, you and Benjamin could see me. If, if daddy doesn't believe you, at least he'll believe Benjamin. <laughs> these are people just like us. Then in verse 14, Joseph embraces Benjamin, his full-blooded brother, and together they weep. And then, I'm happy to note, Joseph kisses and embraces all his brothers, and together they all weep. They are, for the first time, probably for the first time in Joseph's 37 or 38 years, they are for the first time truly brothers. And Pharaoh now enters the picture, the God who turns the heart of the king in whatever direction he ordains has Pharaoh in verses 16 through 20 promise, as Joseph had promised, to give to Joseph's family the best of the land of Egypt he assures them in verse 20, don't have any concern about your goods. I'll give you the best of all the land. It will be yours. And now, remember. Remember how 20 years earlier, the brothers stripped Joseph of his clothing. Now, Joseph gives to each a change of clothing. But to Benjamin, he gives five changes of clothing and 300 shekels of silver. I don't know how much money that is, but I'm, I'm assuming it's a wad, okay? I don't know. <clears throat> Interesting that the scripture doesn't say much, but at least it doesn't appear to us that the brothers resent Joseph's special treatment of Benjamin. And of course, in verse 23, Joseph also sends special gifts and provisions for his father. Now for another human touch. As they depart, Joseph tells them, A, no quarreling on the way home. I mean, yes. They're reconciled, but they're still people just like us. Joseph doesn't want them arguing about who or who is not responsible for past events. Instead, he wants them to remember what he has told them repeatedly, that God sent him before them to preserve for them a remnant, to preserve for them a remnant that would become a family that would, a family that would become a great nation. So in verses 25 through 28, they return home. They tell Jacob, uh, Dad, um, you know Joseph? You remember Joseph? The one we told you was killed by a wild animal? Well, Forget all about that, Dad, because Joseph, I mean, think of the, what they have to stumble over in this explanation. 
Dad, Joseph is alive and he rules all of Egypt and Jacob is numb. But as the brothers continue to tell him all that Joseph said and, they, and he sees the wagons that Pharaoh sent, he revives and he concludes, it's enough. Joseph, my son, is alive and I will go and see him before I die. So let me make three observations. First, note how the Lord sovereignly uses the wickedness of these brothers and a devastating famine to achieve his purposes. So likewise, my friends, even in the midst of the most troubling moments in your life, if you are his and he is yours, the Lord is sovereignly working to accomplish what is for your temporal and eternal welfare. And I know you want to scream, well, what is it? Well, I can't tell you any more than anybody could have told Joseph and these brothers 20 years earlier what it would be. But the God of Joseph, of Judah, is at work in your midst, in your life, in your circumstances. Secondly, note how Judah choosing to die to himself. Notice how Judah choosing to die to himself is used by the Lord to reconcile this dysfunctional family. My friends, Jesus willingly died that you might be reconciled to him and to one another. In his strength, you are able to die to yourself for the sake of others so that you might be reconciled and live at peace with one another. And thirdly, note how God uses all of this to preserve his people. In Egypt, they won't die of starvation. In Goshen, they'll live separate from most Egyptians, and most importantly, even more importantly, in Goshen, they will live separated from the Canaanites whose lifestyles they were too often tempted to emulate. And the scripture will testify, as we'll see next week, as you can read at the beginning of the book of Exodus, that over the next 400 years, they will prosper and they will become a great nation. Yes, I know. I know the story. I know that in the end, they will end up as slaves. But that also will be a part of the Lord's redemptive purposes. Because from them, and particularly through the line of Judah, will come Jesus, your Savior, your Lord, and your King. God is preserving his people. The Lord is even today building his church despite all of hell's desperate attempts to stop the expansion of his church throughout the world.
There are more Christians in more places at this moment in time than ever before in history. Your Lord is sovereignly in control of all things. Reconciling to himself a people who can live at peace with him and with one another and powerfully building his church so that not even all the power of hell can overcome it. Your God is at work in your life in both good and challenging times. He is maturing you. Look at Judah's maturing. He is maturing you more and more into an image bearer of Jesus, preparing you to enjoy for all eternity a home free of dysfunctional families. A home free of death and mourning and crying and pain. The God of Genesis 37 through 50 is your God. He is still at work accomplishing his divine and perfect purposes for your temporal and eternal welfare. Why? You astonished by Judah's love for Benjamin? I am. I don't expect that of Judah. We'll be even more astonished by that the sinless one, your creator, your Lord, your king, loves you with a love that will never let you go. And that he promises to go with you now and always until the end of the age when he returns triumphant over all the dysfunctionality. I don't even know if that's a word. Over all the dysfunctionality that corrupts our lives and our relationships. To God be the glory, the honor, and the praise for what he has done, for what he is doing, for what he will do. And all God's people said, Amen. Father, to you be the glory, the honor, and the praise for all that you have done for all that you are doing, for all that you will do. May we learn to rest with confidence in you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.